Hi, this is Colin. So when we listen to music, well, we're sort of completing the cycle that begins with the creator of the music, the performer of the music. If we listen with a kind of heightened awareness, if we bring various sensibilities to bear as we're listening to the music, we become part of the act of creation. We become part of the musical experience. That is the argument made in a new book co-written by Susan Rogers, who is a neuroscientist and was at one time a recording engineer for Prince. She has a voracious appetite for music and a lot of very strongly expressed ideas about it. But at the core, it's that idea that our job as listeners is, in fact, to enhance the experience of music. So get ready for a very, very pretty musical ride. So that's a song by Jesse Winchester, the late, great Jesse Winchester. I would encourage you to seek out um, uh, an occasion where he performed it kind of live on a program called Spectacle, I think. But his uh, with him on that show were uh, Elvis Costello and the uh, all-country singer Nico Case. And the two of them are just... <laughs> floridly in tears by the end of this. And I think Elvis says something like, you got me in rehearsal, Jesse, and you just got me again today. There's something about that song for me, too. And so today we're talking to Susan Rogers, who's the co-author of This Is What It Sounds Like, What the Music You Love Says About You. She is both a sound engineer, record producer, and a neuroscientist. Before I bring Susan on board, I'm going to quickly tell you a story, because I think it sort of will be fun to have Susan talk about. So a lot of you know... I'm hoping it's through this story without crying. A lot of you know that uh, my significant other went into the hospital for what seemed like was going to be a fairly routine thing. And then she wound up not getting out of the hospital for 10 and a half months. And for the first four of those months, I couldn't visit her because of COVID restrictions. Eventually, during those four months, we managed to get her daughter in. And so what we would do, I just knew music was going to be so important. And she was really kind of many times hovering just at the brink of death um, and and was multiply you know, intubated and put on respirators and stuff like that. And I just thought, you know, music is so important to her. It's If anything's going to bring her back, it's going to be part of it. So once we got her daughter in, we got a boombox into the room and I would make playlists and my son-in-law would um, burn them onto CDs and we'd bring them in that way. And then after four months, I could visit her. 
And the first time I visited her, she she had no voice. She was uh, she had a trach, a uh, breathing apparatus, which meant she had no speaking voice. Um, and you know, she just was still pretty enervated by everything that had been happening to her. But so I brought music and a little Bluetooth speaker, and you know, we were trying to communicate. I'm really bad at lip, uh, lip reading. It turns out, like really bad. And we were looking for ways to communicate and to connect. And so I was playing these songs uh, that I knew she loved. And suddenly this particular song, I'm going to play a little bit for you right here. This was playing, and then I'll tell you what happened. As I went down in the river to pray, studying about that good old way, and who shall wear the starry crown? Good Lord, show me the way. Oh, sisters, let's go down, let's go down, come on down. Oh, sisters, let's go down, down in the river to pray. As I went down in the river to pray, studying about that good old way, and who shall wear the robe and crown? Good Lord, show me the way. Oh, brothers, let's go down, let's go down, come on down. Come on, brothers, let's go down, down in the river to So that's Alison Krauss, and she's singing Down to the River to Pray from Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? It's a traditional song. And I looked at my significant other, my partner, lying in her hospital bed, and her lips were moving perfectly to the song. And I just started playing more songs. She's also one of those people. She knows the words to everything. I just started playing more songs that I knew that she loved. And she was mouthing the lyrics to all of those. And even though she, she couldn't walk or stand up or anything, suddenly I could see her body moving a little bit under the sheets to Gloria Estefan's one, two, three. And I realized, wow, music is just, it's going to be so important. And so for the next six months, whenever I visited her, I would bring music. And we would play it, and we would. And eventually, she got her voice back. She could even sing a little bit, and we would sing together. And I would dance around her bed. We had the, the looniest room at Yale New Haven Hospital. The nurses and doctors would cruise by just to see what kind of music party was happening in this hospital room. But she's home now. She's home and we can enjoy music together. And so, Susan Rogers, I think this is a good place to start because there's a lot of things going on there. Stuff that probably speaks to your role as a neuroscientist uh, and also things that speak to your role as a lover of music and a lover of the way that music promotes intimacy. And in fact, we could even begin there and say there's a long-running debate about why music exists and why human beings know how to appreciate it or have the capacity to appreciate it. And, and I think one of those ideas has something to do with our emotions. Mm. Yeah, there's so much to talk about there. That's a powerful and moving story. And right in line with the thesis in the book, which is talking about what music is doing to us privately in the private canyons of our of our minds, those private spaces where we are listeners and where we interpret each of us on our own. 
what a song means, what it's doing to us. So theories of how music or why music evolved um, started with sexual selection with Charles Darwin, and that makes good sense. And you don't mess with Chuck D because he knew what he was talking about. But there are more recent theories that say that music evolved from our capacity to express our emotions with our voices. So when you're a little infant, you learn that people use their voices to calm you down, to amp you up, to reprimand you to warn you, and you begin to learn how the pitch changes and the timing in our voices convey what we're feeling. And then you get a little bit bigger and you use your own voice to do the same thing, to talk back with people. Music is especially powerful for our brains because it uh, typically has lyrics, not always, but when lyrics and rhythm and melody are all intertwined. What that means is that, that that music, any of those records you just played, can come up through our brainstem and branch off to be processed in different regions of the brain. We can focus on just the lyrics over there on the left hemisphere for most of us, or we can attend to the melody, the feeling, and that sweet melody that we just heard. That feeling may be maybe matching the lyrics or it may be in contrast to the lyrics doesn't matter that's going to be for most of us over in the right hemisphere and then we've got rhythm and rhythm is going to activate our motor cortex up above then we've got our forebrain which is making decisions about do i know this song is it somewhere in my memory bank do i have personal associations with this song do i like the style of this song of this particular recording so we say in music cognition that music listening is a whole brain workout. It activates so many regions of the brain, which is why it is so personal and unique to us. So that leads to me to an anecdote that's very near the beginning of your book. You were working for Prince and during, I think, a recording session, Miles Davis, as he was kind of wont to do, I've discovered over the years, was dropping in there. He was there talking and he asked you some questions about whether or not you were a musician. Tell, tell that part of the story. Yeah. So I found myself toe to toe, and I'm not exaggerating here, with the great Miles Davis in Prince's home studio. And that marvelously intense face of his with those big eyes was right in front of me. And he was just firing off rapid fire questions. Who are you? Where are you from? What do you do? How long you been here? Blah, 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 blah. And uh, I was holding my own and I was right there with him. And then he asked, are you a musician? And I said, no. He said, that's okay. Some of the best musicians I know aren't musicians. He turned around and that was the end of our, <laughs> of our duet. And, you know, I thought about it for years. What's he mean by that? But I got to know a couple other musicians who played with him in, in the 90s. And they said he would often instruct his musicians to play like non-musicians. What he was reflecting here is what we know about music. Music is an expression of life. It's not life itself, but it's an expression of life. So music should be ideally, just like life, it should be simple and complex. It should be clean and dirty. It should smell sweet 
It should stink. It should be robust and fragile, beautiful and ugly. Music should be all the things that life is. So we non-musicians, those of us who don't play or write or sing or perform, we non-musicians because we have life, we have music in us, and we have a way of expressing our feelings and our rhythms and our desires. Those wants, desires, and feelings can be turned into music by those with training. I love that. Yeah, the way that you put it is that implicit in Miles's declaration was the conviction that when it comes to the creation of a musical experience, the act of listening can be every bit as vital as the act of performance. I think that's actually true across all kinds of genres and disciplines, but music in particular, right? We're still engaged. With, I mean, Jesse Winchester isn't even around anymore, and yet his music is yes. enough to bring people to tears. Is enough to because, in fact, we have to bring a whole bunch of sensibilities to it to really make the flower bloom. But maybe you could say more about that. And I would tell you that um, some of my favorite times in the studio, I was a record maker for 22 years and spent just countless hours in the recording studio with musicians from the very famous to, you know, from Prince and Crosby, Stills and Nash and David Byrne, folks like that, to uh, folks that are less well-known. And, I loved when we would sit around at the end of the night, you know, you've finished your work for the day, you're exhausted, but you're too wired to go home and go to bed. So you just talk. People will have a beer and you just relax. It's middle of the night. And the conversation would nearly always turn to music. So that's what all of us have in common is our love for music. And musicians would talk about a great player they had worked with in the studio or a live concert they'd seen with a great performer, or they'll talk about a record they're listening to now and why it's so great. Now, when the metaphorical microphone is passed around the room, I, as a non-musician, could always hold my own in those conversations because those conversations came from a place not of making music, but of loving music, of being a listener. And I had something to say about that. I think with this book, I was hoping as the writing of it went along that the lay audience, the music lovers, the listeners would recognize that, yeah, I've got something to say about music. I know something about music, and I am, hopefully, musical, that I can hold my own in these conversations. Oh, absolutely. And, of course, the other part of this is we we did a, a whole show a few years ago in front of a live audience with a, a jazz ensemble on stage. And actually, there were musicians who kind of knew each other, but they never played together as an ensemble. But one of the things I wanted them to do, I, I think I might have even stopped them in the middle of a song and say, okay, and I said, okay, what's happening here? Like, how do you, Steve Davis, trombonist, know mm-hmm. what you're going to play based on what Matt DeChamplain just did on the piano? And they, they, they talked more frankly than I've ever heard musicians, jazz musicians or, or more lucidly than I've ever heard jazz musicians talk about it. But it was all about listening. You know, I mean, they were just listening to each other incredibly carefully. We can demonstrate this really quickly. F, F Dorian minor. right there. 
Did you hear that one note that sounded a little ah da da da? Because Matt played a, ma a minor major seven. He had the audacity to throw an E natural in an F minor chord, which, which has E flat in it usually. That's called a minor major seven. Can, can, can we dig that one? Yeah, so, so, so when I heard that, I, I, I said, touche. <laughs> so I said, as opposed to, right next door. It's just a little subtle difference. Where you've got to be a good listener. There's a great pianist, Mulgrew Miller. He said, show me a great player and I'll show you a great listener. I think this is especially important in jazz, right? You just absolutely have to listen to what everybody's doing. Otherwise, when it's time for you to solo or even work with whatever the soloist is doing, you won't know how. Right. Jazz musicians are the elite of the music world because they improvise. They perform composition in real time, as it's been called. You have to be extraordinary. You have to have an extraordinary memory for hundreds of standards. You also have to be able to think on your feet and employ knowledge of music, of course, but you need to be able to go back into your own head. I'll explain what I mean by that. You need to be able to go back into your own head to create in real time. This has actually been shown in the laboratory in fMRI studies. They had musicians in special scanners and they had these jazz musicians improvise a solo. And the researchers watched where in the brain the activity was taking place. When the soloists, most of them, when they started off their solo, they played the head or what Prince would call the lead line. This is the main melody. But after you've played the main melody, your job as a jazz musician is to now let's talk about this musical story and let's talk about it in such a way that maybe we're playing a few notes or adding some harmony that the, the audience doesn't know. We're going to we're going to make some variations on this theme. And when these musicians did this, there was a deeper region in the brain that became active. The musicians activated um structures and circuits that are involved with our default network. In the book, I wrote about the default network. The default network is a, an interconnected network of brain nuclei that get active when we're going into our own heads, which if people are being honest, they do 30 to 50% of the time. We're not always focusing on external stimuli, what we're seeing or hearing or tasting or touching. We're often focused on our internal stimuli, our thoughts and our feelings. So music is one of the easiest ways to get us to go into our own heads as listeners. And it turns out as performers too, when you're creating, you're activating your default network. One of, uh, I just wanted to just squeeze in one more Miles story, which is we also did a whole show a few years ago about Laura Nero. And I discovered a story where Laura, Nero, and Miles, they would sort of run into each other and talk. To, and there was sort of that, yeah, well, I should play on your album someday or something kind of thing that musicians do. But he shows up in the studio and he's he's listening to what's been worked out on a particular track. And then either the producer or Laura Nero says, well, you know, do you want to play on this? And Miles looked very seriously at them and said, no, I don't have anything to say. You said everything already. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which yeah, is, yeah. Which, go ahead, yeah. Just react to that. I was going to say that, that that's 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 so perfect. He was such a sublime 
musician and he understood music's function. He understood its job. He understood how each individual part is bringing something to the ensemble. A little bit, there are a lot of parallels between music and um, film and television, stage plays. And he recognized there's no role for me here. I'm not needed. In fact, my presence would make it worse, not better. Right. It takes a certain kind of person to be able to figure that out, though. All right. We're talking to Susan Rogers. Uh, Her book is This Is What It Sounds Like, What the Music You Love Says About You. We're going to take a quick break here. We'll come back. We're going to talk about the seven kind of indexes that Susan has set up to help us understand what's happening when we listen to music. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. Recognize that song? Uh, well, good on you. <laughs> no, it just proves that it's a somewhat, uh, a little bit recherche. That's King Gizzard and the Lizard Wizard. It's Crumbling Castle. We're talking to Susan Rogers right now. She's the co-author of the book, This Is What It Sounds Like, What the Music You Love Says About You. So in this book, Susan, you set up these kind of seven indexes if that's the right word, seven ways, seven dimensions of music. Authenticity, realism, and novelty, those aren't necessarily confined to music. And then the ones that are, melody, lyrics, rhythm, timbre. So the song that I just played appears in the chapter or section about novelty. So let's, oh, I have to say one other thing, which is the more I thought about the seven dimensions, the more I thought when, you know, John Landau famously in 74, I think, saw Bruce Springsteen and, you know, went back and wrote, I've seen the future of rock and roll and it's Bruce Springsteen. He's talking about all seven of those things. All seven (laughs) of those things are completely present in that statement. But anyway, talk a little bit about novelty. So, 
Each of us is born with some sort of predisposition toward thrill-seeking. It's in our genes. Thrill-seeking folks are willing to take a risk to engage with new stimuli. And the non-thrill-seeking folks would prefer to play it safe. And this gene gets expressed differently in different areas of our life. So you might be a real risk risk taker when it comes to food or fashion and very conservative in other areas of your life. So the dimension of novelty versus familiarity refers to an axis of innovation in music. Some music listeners, I'm one of them, are seeking innovative musical ideas. And when we hear innovation, new things, we get excited pleases us because someone took a musical risk, as King Gizzard and the Lizard Wizard did. Others prefer a more familiar form. Now, there's nothing wrong with that. For for those who prefer the more familiar form of music, what they're seeking is not innovation. In fact, they're averse to innovation. What they're seeking is, how do you take a classic form of music and make it perfect? Just like folks who love sports will watch a game. They'll watch basketball or baseball or something. You know how the game goes. Won't be any surprises there. What you don't know is how this particular game goes. And you want to watch this game played at the highest level. So it's the same thing with music. That axis of novelty versus familiarity has at its center pop music. Music that is popular is music that has managed to find the just right blend, a perfect balance of novelty and familiarity. It's got a familiar enough structure that listeners can ground it in other forms of music they've already heard, but it's got enough innovation that it keeps the uh, train of cultural advancement rolling. Uh, All of us have a sweet spot on that axis. I, I have so many things I'd like to say back to that, including I, I sort of think that the familiarity versus the novelty seekers, I think it's like 70-30, the familiarity people <laughs> vastly outnumber. I, that might even be over generous. Also, the King Gizzard thing, I have to tell you that one of our producers, Jonathan McPants, when he was pulling that song, he added it to one of his playlists. He said he wanted to figure out what, if any, time signature <laughs> that song is written and recorded in. And that can be some of the shock of something, right? I mean, it's famously, the Beach Boys song or the Brian Wilson song, Till I Die, is not written in a key. I'm a cork on the ocean, floating over the raging sea. How deep is the ocean? How deep is the ocean? And you can sort of imagine Mike Love's shock listening to that. The idea that the Beach Boys were going to be recording something like that. So, and I, I wanted to say one other thing. So I remember, speaking of your former employer, when uh, 1999 came out and I was having a party at my house, kind of roll up the rugs and dance kind of party. And I, I had DMSR on because I thought, what a great song, you know, even has dance in the title. <laughs> and baby boomers came over to me, my fellow baby boomers, and said, we can't dance to this. We don't put on some dance music. We can't dance to this. And by dance music, they meant like the Four Tops or something. And and it was because, I mean, obviously, it's a very danceable song. But there's something about the shock of it. It's just different. And people panic, right? And they think, oh, I can't dance to this. Everybody, get on the floor. Why the hell did you come here for? 
Yeah, this is what's been happening until very recently. So uh, if I may digress a little bit, back in the Ten Pan Alley days, the era of great American songwriting, songwriters were focused on melody and melody was king. Melody mattered greatly. And then we got into the 1960s and what mattered more, where there was more innovation was in lyrics. You got Bob Dylan and you, you have folks like Leonard Cohen and you have poets who are putting their poetry to music. So we entered an age of lyrical dominance. And then in the 80s, hip hop and rap came along and we entered an era of rhythmic innovation. In the early 2000s, producers like Timbaland and Just Blaze were just killing us with these innovative rhythms. <laughs> what happened to those good old days? They were dropping beats and adding beats in unexpected places, really innovating with rhythm, which compelled people on the dance floor to come up with new dances to serve and to match this music. That's how we got hip hop dance, a much more athletic style of dance than, than uh, some older styles. Anyway, we're just now, it appears, entering the era of timbral innovation. Now that we have these affordable and easily accessible tools, Young sound designers are experimenting with sound itself. I think timbre's going to have a long run. Rhythm had a decades-long run, rhythmic innovation. I think timbral innovation will go just as long, if not even longer. Yeah, I mean, that rhythmic innovation spills over, too, into Broadway when, I think, when Hamilton hits exactly. the stage on Broadway, suddenly you're hearing you're hearing a kind of rhythmic innovation that's been present, obviously, in, in hip-hop for a while. It just hasn't been done on the stage. And what you're also hearing, you know, are these... I I'm, have kind of an obsession with dactyls. So, like, Strawberry would be a dactyl. I, actually, I sort of believe once the Beatles started writing more in dactyls, their music changed. They started using words like Strawberry, and suddenly the whole metric line starts to change. Interesting, and, isn't it? Yeah, and yeah. so Hamilton, yeah. the, Hamilton and Jefferson, those are both dactyls. <laughs> and and so you just hear something that as innovative as Broadway can be, right? Nobody's ever heard anything quite like this on the stage before. Yeah, I've never thought of that before about dactyls. Words, of course, have have a rhythm, and uh, our languages have certain rhythms. English happens to be a stress-timed language. We put our stresses on the words we want to emphasize. But um, Spanish, French, those are syllable-timed languages. Every third syllable or so is where the stress is going to go, regardless of the words you're saying. So <laughs> from the time we're in the third trimester of pregnancy, when we're in the womb, we're hearing the rhythms of our mother's voice and dad's voice too. If dad puts his mouth there on mom's tummy at the end of uh, the pregnancy. So we come out of the chute 
already understanding a little bit about consonance and dissonance and understanding a little bit about the rhythm of our culture. An interesting fact is that young children, elementary school, tend to be mistrustful and suspicious of unfamiliar music. They tend to actively dislike it. If little kids all of a sudden encounter a new child in the school who's from another culture and it's found out that this child listens to a different kind of music, kids won't be as accepting of that foreign student. This is because when we're in elementary school, that's the age where we're starting to recognize that music is symbolic of our people, our culture. There's an us that we belong to, and music is symbolizing that. Right. And so I think it's also true that these dimensions, as interesting a way as they are to understand our participation as listeners in the creation of a musical experience, they're for the most part not isolated, right? They all work together. I'm thinking, just stay with dactyls for a second, okay? So there's a Lyle Lovett song. Honey, put down that flask water and pour me some ice water. So that you hear that and sort of fly swatter and ice water, they're dactyls, but there's so much going on there, including the introduction, right? You're suddenly being told, wow, this isn't a typical country song. First of all, metrically, it's not a typical country song. There's a way in which there's a, a certain kind of whimsy that's a little bit unusual. Lyle Lovett's voice is a thing unto itself, too, a very powerful instrument. So our experience, we get the novelty of that first line and kind of the rhythms used in that first line. We get the power of lyrics themselves because right away Mm -hmm. you've kind of conjured this hot, lazy day, flies buzzing and ice water needed and stuff. I I don't know. There's a way in which the introduction of a song can be a very powerful thing, that that first few bars that invite you in. Yeah, the, the things I learned in grad school about music perception and cognition just really blew my mind because I kept reflecting back to the recording studio and wishing that I had known about these things when I was making records. So it turns out when we listen to music, that signal is coming up from our cochlea and up through the auditory brain stem and into the higher regions of the brain. We kind of do an automatic mental scanning for treats. So when you're hearing, we do, when you're hearing a record for the first time, your default network is scanning this record and it's independently assessing lyrics. Are these words anything I'm interested in? Is this anything I need to solve a problem or to reflect on? You'll go over to the melody region and you'll ask yourself, am I pleased with this melody? What emotion is it expressing? And of course, all of this is automatic. You'll feel the rhythm and you'll ask yourself or ask your body, do I want to synchronize my body with this rhythm? You'll also attend to just the sounds, to the timbral design. You'll attend to the style of the record. Is this the style of record I like? Is it old or new fashioned? Is it uh, something that I can easily visualize in the case of realistic records? Or is it more abstract and more cerebral? So there you are. You're scanning and you're looking for where the treats lie. And often when we find a treat, especially when hearing a novel record, when we find a treat, we linger on it. So you hear a record for the first time, and if the melody catches you, 
you're right there. You're right there with that melody, maybe with that harmony as well. And you're kind of ignoring the lyrics. It could be the other way around, of course. So many times people will tell you, you know, I love that record and I never really listened to the words until recently. Other times people will report, yeah, you know, I could tell you all the words to that song, but I don't think I could hum the melody for you. <laughs> uh, we all find our zones of interest and tend to linger there. I, You know, I love that idea of treats. Uh, I think another term that musicians use that I've heard is payoff. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was backstage. I was, I don't know, hosting something, some night of Gershwin, and I can't even remember which composition it was, but the solo pianist was backstage with me, and the orchestra was playing out there, and, and we he came to a part. I think it might be from a, an American in Paris where there's this just shimmering mm-hmm. chord, and, and the guy turns to me and goes, that's the pay, what a payoff. And, and mm-hmm. I, I never kind of lost that idea since then. Yes. I mean, a lot of times when I'm listening to a song, I go, oh, you know, listen, listen to that payoff. And that's the treat too, right? Yeah. In the studio, uh, we we listen for that. Record producers, that's their job is to listen for that. So music is tension and release, just like life is. And so you spend some time on sections building tension, building anticipation. And the listener who's heard this song before, or even listeners who haven't heard this song before, know enough about the music of their culture to know, here's when the treat should be coming. I'm thinking I'm going to be getting a treat here. This should be a treat. (laughs) And that's the structure called the nucleus accumbens that is anticipating treats and is leaning forward if this is the kind of thing that you want to hear more of. And when that treat comes, another circuit called the caudate nucleus says, yeah, I knew that was coming and I was right. This feels so good. I accurately made a prediction about when this release or payoff or treat was going to happen. Another thing that's interesting to music cognition researchers is sometimes we get just as much of a treat when you have the setup and the payoff doesn't arrive. When you have the tension and suddenly you're left suspended there. The producer Just Blaze can do that in small temporal sections by repeating something over and over and over again. And you're just aching for that release. Come on, stop repeating this (laughs) phrase. Let's get to it already. So that's called positive prediction error. You thought it was going to happen and it didn't happen. That can build up anticipation even even higher. This is what works on the dance floor when we think the chorus is coming and all of a sudden it goes to a breakdown. And it's like the floor just falls out from beneath you. It feels good. Mm-hmm. Off the top of your head, can you think of an example of what you were just talking about? That whole idea of just sort of keeping something going, keeping you in, in anticipation and maybe not ever giving it to you? Oh, think of any song, any song that's got a dance breakdown Mm. and you'll hear it. Or think about a song that has a reverse dynamic in the chorus. Usually in most Western music, the verse is relatively small and then the chorus gets bigger. But it's very exciting when we go to a chorus that maybe is just a cappella, just the voices or even an, an instrumental chorus have the voice drop out for a moment when you're not expecting it. It's a tiny little treat, but it's a little trickle of dopamine that's satisfying. (laughs) I feel like Brian Wilson really is one of the geniuses of the treat and the payoff, and usually (sighs) some amazing chord that's just a little bit diminished or unpredictably modified, you know, over and over again in those songs. He just gives you this thing. Here's this thing I made. Enjoy it. A sublime musical mind, a genius of geniuses. Yeah, I agree completely with that. All right, we're going to take a quick break, and we have a final segment with Susan Rogers, and we'll be back. I'm taking this 
horse, smell of rains, wicked red coats, weather with blood stains. Then I'm never gonna stop until I make a jump up and I'm up and scatter the remains. I'm Watch me engaging them, escaping them, and raging them out. I go to France for more fun. I come back with more guns and ships. And so their balance shifts. We rendezvous with Rochambeau, consolidate their gifts. We can end this war in your town. Hi, I'm Ray Hartman. Season 3 of Where Art Thou is just around the corner. I'll be back on the road meeting incredible Connecticut artists. You'll hear their stories and we'll throw in a few surprises as well. Season 3 of Where Art Thou premieres June 9th on CPTV. For more, visit ctpublic.org WAT. Support provided by the Richard P. Garmini Fund at the Hartford Foundation for Public Giving, the State of Connecticut Office of Film, Television, and Digital Media, and Connecticut Humanities. Time to say some thank yous. Kat Faster is our technical producer today. And Lily Tyson, the senior producer of The Colin McEnroe Show, is this episode's producer, assisted by Jonathan McPence and his endless quest for a King Gizzard time signature. So we're back. Susan Rogers is the co-author of the book, This Is What It Sounds Like, What the Music You Love Says About You. I want to talk a little bit about authenticity. This is one of the, we won't have time to do all seven of your dimensions, unfortunately, but we've covered a lot of them in a way. But there, authenticity is an interesting one because it's, it's not like rhythm. It's not easily quantifiable, but you, there's sort of a Potter Stewart thing here, right? You know it when you hear it. But say a little bit more about how you perceive authenticity. Yes. Authenticity is indeed subjective. It's your perception, you the listener, your perception of where the performance gestures are coming from, of the performer's intentions. It's been shown in visual art that we can tell the difference between an abstract painting done by a professional painter and a, uh, a really similar looking finger painting done by a little child. Authenticity allows us to be able to say things like, that singer is singing her heart out, or this guy is feeling that bass part in his groin. He's lusting with that bass. Or you might take a virtuoso performer, whether it's a John Coltrane or Ella Fitzgerald or anyone who is a true maestro, and say that they have such perfect technique that they can express any emotion just on technique alone. They don't actually have to be feeling the emotion that they're expressing. What we're listening for in the recording studio is to make sure that those performance gestures are coming from someplace and that they're genuine. What we don't want to hear is a perfect performance played timidly with no soul, with no gusto. I like how my friend, the musician Tommy Jordan says, the wrong note played with gusto always sounds better than the right note played timidly. What does that mean? It means gusto, feeling, intentionality, passion is important in the listener's experience of music. You know, there uh, one person who I think has taken a lot of grief about this, some of it maybe legitimately, but a lot of it illegitimately, is Linda Ronstadt. Whether she was recording with Nelson Riddle and doing all these, you know, American songbook tunes or recording some, some of the newer music by Elvis Costello. Elvis Costello kind of famously dissed her and said she doesn't know what these songs mean. And I thought that was unkind and unnecessary.
But I, I think in, the, in that case, I, I thought she did fine with the American Standard stuff. But I did think, well, you know, her singing an Elvis Costello tune, maybe it just isn't, it doesn't feel right, maybe in a way that is difficult to quantify, but it might have something to do with authenticity. I mean, Elvis mm. Costello songs kind of come from Elvis Costello. Right. That's perceived authenticity. To Elvis's ear, it sounded inauthentic. To other listeners' ears, it might have sounded perfectly authentic. Linda Ronstadt is definitely a master of technique, incredible timing, incredible pitch. I loved Bob Dylan's versions of American standards that he's been he's been singing recently. And the technique is well his voice isn't as strong as it used to be. His pitch is as good as ever, but what I get from it is the weight of life. Don't know why there's no sun up in the sky. Stormy weather. Since my gal and I ain't together Keeps raining all the time Life is bare Gloom and misery everywhere Stormy weather Similarly with Johnny Cash, when he was making recordings later in his life, you hear an older man and you hear the weight of all of his life experiences come through in that voice, in his timing, in his phrases, where he chooses to pause, where he rushes, where he's behind the beat. That's expressive to listeners who are receptive to and listening for that kind of of authenticity. That leads us to probably the last thing we'll have time to talk to Susan Rogers about, and that is the whole question of timbre. And since you just mentioned Johnny Cash, we have a nice occasion to do it. So let's listen to the song Hurt by Nine Inch Nails. This is the 1994 recording of Hurt. I hurt myself today to see Johnny Cash in 2002. What have I become? My sweetest friend. Everyone I know goes away in the year. And you could have it all. I will let you down 
So, Susan Rogers, talk a little bit about this. This this comes up, I think, in your section about timbre. Although, once again, we could we could approach it from a lot of different dimensions. But but tell tell us what you hear here. Isn't that marvelous? In the book, I chose that to illustrate how the exact same script can be read by two different actors and give you a very different impression. Same thing here. So the, the words are the same in the song. The melody is the same. But primarily what's changing in these two records is the timbre of the voice. So when a young man, Trent Reznor, sings, I hurt myself today, a young person saying those words in a soft, breathy voice, well, maybe asking for help, but an old man who says, I hurt myself today. It's, to my ear, a little bit more chilling because this older man isn't asking you for help. This older man is more steadfast in his beliefs and his thoughts. He's more deliberate with what he's trying to convey to you. And when he sings, I remember everything. Oh, I mean, from my ear, it's a more powerful emotion that I feel in response to that because older men who are singing these words perhaps are on a, are closer to the edge of a cliff than a young man who's simply looking at the cliff and wants some help to be pulled back from it. If I could start again A million I think it also kind of illustrates a, a shift that had to happen. You know, you talked about those different phases of modern popular music history, and we did go through this period where authenticity meant being a singer-songwriter, being Bob Dylan, Joni Mitchell, James Taylor. You sing the songs you write. They are expressions of who you are. And, and so the interpreter of a song took a little bit of, of a back seat probably hence some of the opprobrium directed at Linda Ronstadt. But, you know, you hear Johnny Cash interpret Trent Reznor, you know, and you realize the power of that, right? That somebody, people get mad at me when I say I actually like Sean Colvin's This Must Be the Place better than David Burns. But, you know, I mean, you have to say something, speaking of timbre, of the ability of a voice just to find different elements or just to be more pleasing for for fairly complicated reasons. Yes, humans evolved such that our auditory brains put the highest regard, the priority on voices. Humans use their voices, as I was saying earlier, to express what we're feeling. Here's what's going on with us. Listeners can read into the voice and they can tell what your emotions are, what your health is, what your mood is, and that's very powerful. Um, in the book, I, I write a little bit about the male voices that women find attractive and the female voices that men find attractive. One researcher has said that, well, you know, in our ancient past, we found each other in the dark, in the dark of the jungle or the dark of the cave. So we grew to have a, a very keen intuition for what's going on with a person based on the sound of their voice. All right, we're going to stop there, although we could talk so much more about so many other things here. Our guest today has been Susan Rogers, co-author of This Is What It Sounds Like, What the Music You Love Says About You. Okay, take care now. All right, be well. Bye. Okay.